G'day, it's Mick Cullen. Thanks so much for throwing on the headphones and hitting play on this podcast. In this episode, James Cohen's takes on a trip from operations in the rear of one of the most decked out rescue helicopters in the world as a crew member to flying solo across Australia in an R22. I'm pushing this episode out the door with less editing than normal. Well, it's still taken a few hours. So if you're hearing this particular intro, then I do apologise if this is not quite as polished. The main reason I didn't want to sit on this chat with James is because during the episode, we are promoting a GoFundMe campaign for another air crew member and his family that have been impacted by floods in New South Wales. Kyle has been flying support missions, helping other flood victims, and now his house has been made unlivable and most of his family's belongings destroyed by the flash flooding and the accompanying mud. The quickest way you can get some support to the Fenton family is to go to the link rotarywingshow.com forward slash 111. That's the numbers 111, uh, short for episode 111. And that will redirect straight across to the GoFundMe campaign page. That's rotarywingshow.com forward slash the numbers 111. There's also a link in the episode uh, show notes. I've spoken to Kyle and he's been incredibly grateful to everyone that has turned up in person uh, to help them out and for the online support. When it's our first responders who put themselves at risk to help others and then affected themselves by the same events, it's really important to, to rally around from the aviation community. There's more details on that at the end of the podcast. Far less serious but also timely, the Brisbane Christmas drinks for the Aussie Helicopter Pilots Group is coming up on Saturday, the 10th of December. This will be at the Brackenridge Hotel in Brisbane. Uh, there will be a, an Oz Runway presentation from 2pm and a bar tab uh, provided. Uh, RSVPs are needed on Eventbrite so that Terry can engage numbers. The link to the Eventbrite page, it's in the show notes again for this episode. Or drop me an email at feedback at rotarywingshow.com and I'll pass on the flyer. That's Brisbane, Saturday, the 10th of December at Brackenridge Hotel. And don't forget the free bar tab. I'll work on finishing this episode off uh, proper and get that out in the coming days. Until then, here's James Cowens. I hope you enjoy and take away some good lessons. Welcome to the Rotary Wing Show, mate. Thanks uh, for being keen to have a chat. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Mick. It's uh, yeah, long-time listener. Uh, first time being called, so it's, yeah, it's good to good to have a chat with you, mate. Yeah, we've sort of backwards and forwards over the time on on LinkedIn messages, but uh, yeah, it's good to catch on. So, look, very uh, varied background there. So, currently a chicken training uh, aircrew officer, uh, charter pilot, uh, background in the army in terms of uh, uh, aircrew in the army and uh, uh, armored vehicles. Rural um, fire service, and then also a committee member there, a couple of gigs or a couple of hats with the Aeromedical Society of uh, Australasia, uh, including running their podcast. Yep. So, yeah, do you want to just quickly talk about the, the podcast side of things and your, your offside of their cam and how that got started, and then we'll dive into some of the aviation stuff of your background. Yeah, for sure. Um, shameless plug for the for the committee, yeah. Um, as you said, primarily what I do now is, is uh, work on rescue and retrieval um, helicopters uh, out of New South Wales here, and and a few years ago I was approached at one of the conferences by um, by uh, basically a colleague from another department within within health to um, 
to see if I was interested to come on as air crew that, at that stage on their committee that hadn't, uh, you know, that was basically all medical people. So they wanted to diverse a bit and, and so they sought me out for some odd reason and, and, um, and I, yeah, jumped on the committee and, and after a couple of years, you know, I had got into, into Cam's ear, who's the, um, the director of helicopter operations um, in New South Wales for health. So, yeah, he, him and I got chatting and, and he, uh, yeah, he jumped on board as well a couple of years later. And, and then uh, a further couple of years, we were just, as you do in these committees, you talk about, you know, succession plans and growth and, and awareness of, of what it is that we do. And I think the title fairly well gives it away, the Aeromedical Society of Australasia. So all things fixed and rotary wing uh, rescue and retrieval throughout the both Australia, New Zealand, and and we very much have a global presence now, but we still hold the name. And yeah, we just sort of proposed the idea that it's just, you know it's that's a new age thing to do. A lot of people do it, particularly clinicians. And we thought, well, hey, why don't we give this a go? And we're now uh, six. I've just released the sixth podcast a few days ago, so early days, but successful days. We're getting some good feedback, so that's how that all started. So you like the uh, the aircrew diversity uh, hire for the uh, for the uh, the seat then? Yeah, yeah, you could probably say that. So yeah, the old aeromedical rescue and retrieval podcast. So um, and and look, what what we've tried to do, and, and the whole point of it is just again that diversification piece. We have I've spoken to um, the obvious ones, the doctors and nurses, uh, paramedics, but another fellow aircrew officer who had a really great uh, policing background. So. We really try to delve into not just the professional, but the person. And, and uh, look, someday it'll be the intent is everyone from the op staff, the person that answers that triple O call, all the way through to, you know, the, the person that helps us wheel the, wheel the uh, stretcher into the hospital. Um, I don't care who you are, if you have even seen a rescue helicopter from a, from a you know, frontline perspective, then we want to have a chat and learn your story and, and perhaps, you know, others can, can learn the story as well. So we'll link to, to that because essentially episode two is Cam basically interviewing you about your background. So there's a lot of stuff in that that, uh, you know, people can go and find out a bit more. So we won't go into as much detail there. But there was a couple of things I was going to yeah. kind of rift off that you touched on that I thought might be interesting for, for this audience, uh, for those some of, uh, sure. you know, some of the things you raised on that. Yeah, all right. Let's do the, the quick career thing then. So in the Army, light armored vehicles, how did you get across into aviation from that? Did that for a heap of years, or well, a few years really, and then uh, deployed overseas and, and then came back. And I sort of ticked the boxes that I want. I've always got a checkbox list. I've always got, you know, what's next. And once I've done that, I'll move on to the next thing. So then I taught recruits for a bit. But um, it's, it's funny, actually, without going uh, you know, too long into it, I was just reading through my sort of journal that I, that I wrote you know, when I was in the Middle East in 2010 or 11, I hadn't read it since. I just thought, of, what was this cracker on about back then? And and it was really surreal that I came across a part saying, um, hey, you know, I'm loving what these dust-off crew, uh, crews do and I, I, I really want to be a loadmaster now and I might speak to, you know, my, my crewman at the time, more or so Aaron, I'll call him, and I, and I had it written. I said, I'm just going to have a chat with him about it. I don't think I ever did, and I never actioned it because I went off and for, took a couple of years. I, as I said, I came back, taught recruits for a bit, and it was while I was at the recruit school that I thought, uh, I, I think this is the time. I don't. I wasn't really keen to go back to the to to Armoured at that stage because again, I'd done everything. It was now okay. What's next? And that's where the the process began. So I left straight from 
from uh, teaching recruits into aircrew. Okay, and what type were you on uh, after training? I was Blackhawk. Yeah, I was always Blackhawk. So even all my basic training was on on Blackhawk. At that stage, they just finished up the basic training on the 412. I was, I think, I was the second course that went through where, yeah, you went straight on to uh, the basic on Blackhawk, and then um, a couple of my course buddies then went off to MRH or or um, CH47. I stayed on Blackhawk in Sydney. Employment-wise, um, out of Australia, inside Australia, what was the sort of the deployment kind of picture that you got? Yeah, so I, um, I was in 173 Squadron at the time, which was uh, the Green Squadron versus 171, which is the, the Black sort of Special Operations Squadron. So I spent about a year in 173, and in that time I you know, supported a number of exercises, but the, the primary uh, deployment was off to Vanuatu in 2015, supporting a a cyclone PAM that went through. We we uh, positioned over there for a month doing everything that comes with that, you know, moving supplies, both food and building supplies, rebuilding uh, schools to to the Kazavaks in the, in the early days. So that that's that's really the only overseas deployment I did with Blackhawk. And then after that year, I moved into the special operations role, which primarily is domestic counterterrorism, really. Um, and that's where I... Uh, yeah, spent a lot of time on call and just in that domestic response capability. Yeah. Yep, and that's a whole another side of things which we won't touch on because it's uh, yeah it's pretty pretty specialised. Yeah, for sure. So pretty much, you know, it sounds like Vanuatu is a, a fair bit of a crossover with what you're doing in terms of aeromedical gear at the moment. So was that a fairly easy transfer then across? Um, I think you're still in the reserves, but basically from Sydney into the aeromedical. Organisations in Sydney, or how that? How did you kind of make the, the transition out of the military? Yeah, it's um, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. The, the technical aircrew skills certainly carried over, and that that's no secret. That a majority of the civil industry aircrew are ex-military. So, you know, over the generations, the the training that the civil organisations use, the, even the terminology in a lot of cases are, are military. So, the technical side is hand in hand, but it's the, um, I suppose I got a little bit of it in Vanuatu and again, a little bit in the Middle East. I was actually in an armoured ambulance ASLAV variant for a bit of time overseas. So I sort of combined that ground medical crew, you know, working with, with injured injured people and then came back and then obviously went air crew and it was just a bit of a mixing both of those together. So in terms of it preparing me for the, you know, for the, for the aeromedical side of things, probably not so. We didn't tend to do it really well in defence. It was very much an ad hoc capability that we had where quite obviously in the civil world, the ambulance helicopter is purely dedicated to that. So it did take a bit of adjusting and getting used to and, and that's majority where the training is when we, you know, I've got a couple of army air crew coming through now that we've poached, sorry, army again, that we most of our time is spent contextualising. And I noticed in the notes, mate, you love the use of the word contextualisation. Yeah, I didn't get um, to it yet, but, um, well, yeah, I had to laugh. You know, you're throwing out uh, throwing out these big words on, uh, on episode two of the, of the other podcast we've been talking about. So it's like the typical uh, trainer. Yeah, 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 that's all you're going to get out of me. But anyway, I, I, the, the point of that is that, uh, yeah, that the, the biggest learning for our uh, for those that are experienced coming to the job are, is, yeah, is just – Taking off the military hat, putting on a compassionate CV1, and uh, and sort of getting a little bit more resilient than probably what you're used to domestically, anyway. 
You cover a bit in the other podcast, but you also mentioned like on in LinkedIn, one of the, the questions you get hit up all the time is like, what is the entry pathway to become, you know, an aircrew officer? And, and sometimes like different forums, you'll see fresh CPLs who are, you know, obviously trying to look look for work and, and having a hard time depending on which market you're in. But here in Australia, it's definitely not roll out of uh, flight school into, a, into work necessarily. And sometimes they they look at that sort of air career rescue officer role as as one way they can kind of get experience. But like, how realistic is that? And and, and what are the the training platforms or pathways just quickly to to get into, uh, I guess, an air crew role, which is yeah. not necessarily in the front seat. Yeah. So if we're talking purely the backseat stuff, so the air crew officer and the rescue crew officer, and I'll, I'll break those both down. And it's good that because you know, most of your listeners will be sort of interested in that side of it, and that is the the, the ACO and the RCO, so the aircrew officer versus the rescue crew officer, real quick. The rescue crew officer is the person that would generally go down the wire and do the rescues, and the aircrew officer is, is the winch operator, and in some operations such as ours, you're a pseudo-co-pilot in a way, you're non-flying co-pilot, so you're front-left seat and do a few of those things. So um, it's important to understand the difference because typically military people will come out, or I'll also use the term paramilitary, and that's being like police, for example, so police air wing, we do get a, a few from the police. So military and, and paramilitary, very very similar structure. They, you know, they, they typically get out to look for ACO jobs, the aircrofts jobs, because they have the experience, they have that level. Uh, it's the more senior of the of the aircrew officer positions on an aircraft. So it, for if you're non-military, you basically have to start at the RCO level, the rescue crossover level. So, which typically a lot of organisations or a couple of organisations in Australia don't call for minimum hour requirements. They are very much looking for you know the, the fit individual that has the right mindset that they can. They don't care about aviation experience. They will. They would rather, um, as one of my bosses said to me when I when I got uh, recruited in my current role, he said I can. Put, put any monkey in a simulator and teach them teach them how to do the job. But I, I can't change personalities, which are which I still live to that today. So that a lot of these companies look for the right person, you know, driven, not lazy, good attitudes, fit, and they're the entry level position. So I often share a lot of those on LinkedIn, and and, um, and thankfully a few of those people have been successful in that process. And then typically you spend a couple of years getting generally about 500 hours experience, and then you can look to be internally trained to be an ACO. And then once you do that for a few years and get some time up as a as an air crew officer, then you can start to look to move into say rescue or, or aeromedical retrieval and things like that. So we have had a few people come to our organisation that have gone through that stream. Typically, like surf life saving back in the day, they used to take you know some internal applications from those off the beach into their helicopter, and then. Eventually, you get selected to, to progress. We've had another guy come off the National Parks and Wildlife helicopter. So um, there are avenues. It's it's limited, but, yeah, it's through the RCO um, stream. So to dumb it down for pilots again, so this would be more likely the person who would be first down the wire. So in surf life-saving scenario, like we're talking, you know, the, the swimmer, um, those sorts of things. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and a lot of operations, things like, search and rescue for the Air Force, um, offshore oil and gas, some firefighting organisations. Yeah, it's it's an air crew position that is just one of the three typically. So you've got a, a pilot or a single pilot maybe and then an ACO and an RCO. So, yeah, they're the person that goes down the wire. They're generally the, 
the young, fit individual that you know jumps in a wetsuit and down they go and they pluck people out of the water, and then yeah, sit in the back and escort them back to to hospital. Um, in in my operation where I work anyway, our paramedics fill that role, so we don't have they are RCOs, I guess in a way, um, but they're you know they're paramedics that are trained to go down the wire and do that. So some operations use you know uh, clinicians, some will uh, use sort of advanced first aiders to do that, depending on, you know, how much clinical work they're looking at versus just plucking people out of the water that uh, don't require that sort of next level of, of care. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, a whole raft of the people listening to this will never have previously flown with someone in, in the back in an aircrew sort of aircrewman role um, and, and may never. Like it's just in terms of, you know, helicopters being such a small part of aviation, then, you know, ACO, RCO, again, it's just a, such a, a smaller group, again, of, of that particular uh, of group. So, yeah, pretty crazy. I've kind of G'd you up a little bit here, especially with you wearing your, your training hat and, and your checking hat there. But, you know, what, what goes into sure. a, uh, you know, an ACO course? You know, you've got the, the horse goes up, it's one day, the horse goes down, it's the second day. You know, you do it a third day of Hewitt. Uh, and you ticked up. It's uh, that's about it, isn't it? Love it, <laughs> love it. Uh, that's that's basically it. Uh, that's basically it. No, I'm sure there'd be many people out there that are trying to reach through the uh, their headphones at the moment. And, and, and I say it in, in absolute jest, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, absolutely. It's the old saying: the military. Uh, yeah, even now, I'll be in the aircraft, and I'll have a military pilot I flew with back in the army and uh, I'll say, hey, do you, want a, do you want a sandwich or a popper to come forward there, boss? You, uh, this is basically what I did in the military was just hand poppers and sandwiches forward to the pilots. Uh, very different world now, though. And, and oh, the- that's, that's, so, um, that's selling military aircrew uh, pretty short, though. <laughs> yeah, it is. On those long, long transits, it's, uh, there's not much else to do once you're uh, top of climb. But, um, yeah, look, military, incredibly intense. I, I'd spent most of my time, again, in that special operations sphere, so... Um, it was a lot of low-level fast flying, very intense, and a lot of currencies, and so very, very high-speed sort of environment. But that's not to say, you know, any any aviation aircrew are always um, a bit on edge. But yeah, so what, what goes into our course? It typically takes our crew is about two to three months to get through the process. That's not to say that we did it full time, because generally there's only so many of us instructors, and we're trying to maintain a current contract as well as a number of others at the same time in aircrew. So a lot of that is filled with just those one percenters like, the, you know, the marching, the, the induction stuff, so all the human factors and safety management system training and all the other CASA mandatory sort of training that's required. But this is on but, top of someone yeah, who's look, already um, trained, isn't it? Like this is someone who's already coming out of the yeah. military around the police. This is additional on top. Exactly, yeah. So we, we have a minimum requirement of 500 hours current experience, So that, but that's a minimum. Usually we we are able to, to pluck people out with about a thousand hours. We can afford to be a little bit more uh, picky with that. So yeah, look, generally speaking, they come well experienced, but I tell you what, Mick, what I've learned and what I've passed on a lot of people is it's always about hours, right? And I, and I get it because it's the only thing you can measure both from a pilot and an aircrew officer or RCO aircrew air, air in general. It's the only thing you can measure, but I can tell you now, and as most listeners would, would attest to, it does not, necessarily equal competence and that's for sure so it's we don't always just go we always put people through a bit of a learnability exercise or we try to we not only interview them but put them through you know push your money where your mouth is right you've got a thousand hours let's see if you can actually fly like you've got a thousand hours or whatever it might be and we do the same with pilots so whilst we talk about hours it's more just 
it's because we have to. There's no other metric to measure. Um, but yeah, that training, like I said, it's it's more. They go through about five or six flights, and that's that's about in you know, and that's in that two to three months. That's all they do, which which doesn't seem like much, but again, they've already come with that experience. But the rest of the time is going through. You know, what are the hospitals that we go to? What's different about landing on hospitals or roadsides versus in football fields or flying low at night to, to vessels or whatever it might be? So, yeah, a lot of that time is contextualising. And what our, uh, as I said before, military is more often than not dual pilot and dual aircraft officer, dual loadie. So you can sort of spread that love a bit. But in, in our operation and in most aeromedical operations, you're single pilot and you're single aircraft officer. And your RCO doesn't really help a lot in terms of the pilot uh, side of things, but your aircraft officer is, again, as I said, trained as a pseudo-co-pilot. So they'll read IFR plates. So they're well into the VFR charts. They'll, they'll assist in navigation. They'll load lat longs. They'll load, like I said, approach procedures, talk on the radios, phone ahead. They're, I like to loosely use the term the pseudo-mission commander, where in the Army it was, it was none of that. So that's a, that's probably the hardest thing for our crew, both pilots and aircrossers, is to now, you don't have a day to plan a flight and you don't have an hour to brief the entire crew and speak to your authorising officer and all that. It's now you're out the door in 10 minutes. Often it's average seven minutes. So that that is really what it comes down to. That's, that's the part that we have to teach and train before we then clear them to operate solo. And just to balance out, I did have in the notes there that, you know, once you guys are on scene uh, for hoisting that, you know, the pilots just hit the, the, the hover button and then you guys are the, the ones who do the, the hard work. But, uh, again, very much tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. There's a couple of things I want yeah. to pull out from discussion you had in, in the other podcast just to, to bring them in across to here. So you spent a bit of time talking about the importance of um, predictability and, and, you know, the other word I think you used in that too, which might be more familiar to people, is standardisation. Uh, so, you know, whether across a, a, country, yeah. a, a company or across a, a fleet in terms of, you know, configuration management. So, you know, I think that's also where the, the value of having extra crew on board. And again, you know, for, for many helicopter pilots, they'll operate single pilot for their entire career, unless um, they're flying an instructor, is there's the old... You know, the most dangerous words in aviation is watch this. And mm. when that comes back to that predictability type thing, like that just doesn't happen. Like everyone knows what the other person is doing just from that, that training and the fact that you can jump in with pilot A in the morning and jump in with pilot B in the afternoon and kind of expect the same thing from them and the same they can kind of expect the same thing from, from you. Can you just rift on, on that just a little bit in terms of how that plays out in daily operations for you guys yeah absolutely um look those those terms the they both the predictability and the standardization are somewhat interchangeable but there is, there is that difference so the standardization is, is exactly that and um as you've you, you know you've you've uh, just spoken about mate it's it's um it's being able to jump in with someone else and and, and we see that time and time again without with our jurisdiction, we have four four bases, and we have uh, we deliberately bring our crews through a cyclic program, so they come through our training centre three times a year for up to four days at a time, and they will deliberately be paired up with someone from a base that they don't operate with. They know them because it's a smaller company, but they they don't fly operationally together unless one of them does the ad hoc shift covering the other, uh, and that's to prove that that standardisation piece and. And it's, it's awesome to see. It's not, no better feeling as an instructor when you get two people 
or even sometimes we've had a bit of re- recruitment lately where we've had people that it's the first time they've flown together is on a training flight um, when they've come through our centre. And it's you, you could not, you, you'd, you'd, you'd assume that they were flying for years together. And I guess that comes back to that piece about that military training that's been brought in the civil sector or, or maybe even the military sector has absorbed from the civil sector. And so it's not just internally in a company, but somewhat within the industry and within multiple industries. So that's that standardisation piece. Where I talk to about the predictability, I'm more imagining and trying to portray an image of us, say, hovering overhead a winch side up in the mountains, quite complex, quite difficult. We've got a patient down the bottom that's, say, a beacon that's gone off and, and you just don't know what it is, unsure. So... At some point in that in that uh, in that mission, the RCO or in my jurisdiction, the paramedic's going to come off comms, and there's still about another minute of of work we have to do in the back of the aircraft. So I've got to go through another two checklists to make sure that that person is safe to put them out the door, and I'm basically using using the chopping hands, um, and and it's almost sign language where they're expecting the exact same thing every time, and I'm expecting the exact same thing from them. We rehearse it time and time again. Uh, and that's, again, where that standardisation crossover piece comes in. I teach them so I know what, what they should be doing. And that's where, you know, I'm expecting their hand to go an exact certain way. I'm expecting their left hand to do one thing and their right hand to do another thing and, and a, a very precise uh, point. So, And that's where I say to people is just be predictable. Whatever it is that you do, we, you need to be trained and versed and rehearsed enough that we can be off comms, we can be at night, the cabin lights are off, but I just know exactly what you're going to be doing at any point in time. Our job is already unpredictable as it is. So anytime we can be predictable for each other, the pilot, and that goes, we've got four crew, that goes for all of us. The doctor, the paramedic, the ACO and the pilot, he's expecting things from me, I'm expecting things from him. The doctor, it goes four ways at every point in time. So it's when, and that's generally when we see when we get reports back of something that didn't go quite well or there was uh, perhaps an error or a mission or a violation, whatever it might be, is that it's because someone's flow has been messed up or someone else has dropped that predictability piece and has just dumped their bundle, i.e. they've just forgotten what they need to do. And now that distracts, particularly for the ACO. We want our eyes inside for the least amount of time possible, particularly when we're in the winch hovering overhead uh, or, or very near obstacles. So I don't, want to be bringing my head inside any longer than I need to. So the second off I bring my head inside and I see something that's not right, straight away that's now detracted me or distracted me from the, the real threat to the aircraft. And now I'm focused there. The tunnel vision starts to come in. Everything else breaks down. Now I'm starting to miss words that the pilots say. So that, that is really what we spend a lot of our time doing is rehearsing, 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 being predictable. But at the same time, not being that predictable that, should something not go quite right, you can have a pause point and say, okay, I recognise that this isn't right. That's okay because I've got the tools to, to deal with this, but I just need to be able to recognise it so that we don't have anything else break down. Yeah, awesome. The other quick points I had there was, again, for operators to put, and we're talking a different organisation to uh, where, where you are, but for some small operators to put a second person as crew in an aircraft that's a, another lot of pay, the expenses and everything go up. But the, the balance there is 
you know, having a second person, you start to act as a, the pilot's uh, conscience. <laughs> so they're less likely to, to do mm-hmm. something. And it's almost the same thing like with students. Like by the time you put a, you know, a GPS tracker in the, in the aircraft and they know, you know, whether it's a student or a, you know, a company pilot, that their speeds and, and where they're being is being tracked. It brings a, a level of accountability. And I've got to imagine the safety benefit of just that uh, extra person Extra set of eyes and the extra accountability. Um, it's got to help a lot of operations. Now it's um, yeah, you know, quite a different setup for you yeah, guys in terms yeah. of uh, you know size of the aircraft. And you've got a whole heap of people on board, but uh, yeah, I, I reckon that's just a massive exactly. value of having any kind of aircrew, whether it's another pilot or ACO on board. And that's yeah, absolutely. And we've seen that at our trade exponentially um, increase in terms of their capability and their their scope to, to be able to back up the pilot. You know, it's it, many years ago, that wasn't the case. There was still that culture of, no, I'm the pilot. You sit in the back and deal with whatever happens back there. Now, it's proven itself time and time again that, that um, and, and not only that, it helps fight off the, the ever ghosting beast that is dual pilot, you know, and, and, you know, the value of perhaps, do we need a second pilot? Well, perhaps not. If we can continue to develop our aircrafts to, to be able to back up our current pilot, well, that's one less person we need to carry, which means more fuel, more weight, more patience. And so, yeah, we've, we've seen, um, you know, we now train our aircraft officers to be able to recover the aircraft, to, to be able to fly the aircraft back to an airport if the pilot becomes incapacitated. That's the level where our crews are at now. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where we'll continue to develop, yeah. Well, touching off that is situational leadership. Now, I remember plenty of times of, being two very junior pilots in the front and being paired up for that exact reason of having, you know, a, a senior loadmaster in the back uh, just to bring that experience that, that we didn't have with us uh, in terms of, of uh, you know, adding value to decisions. But th- there is that, mm. that situational leadership that in, in any kind of group situation anyway, but especially for, for the flying where there is at times when you are, you know, stabilising the hover set up and the hoisting is happening, there is an element of that mission control at that particular point in the situational leadership passes backwards and forwards depending on what's going on. Now, the pilot command is always going to wear it, I guess, and have the final say, but there's definitely times where you guys are leading from the back just because that's what it needs to get the mission done at that particular time. Yeah, yeah, it's particularly with a crew of four as well, it's fairly seamless and, and unconscious. There's no point during the flight where we go, uh, other than the con, and so where I verbally take control of the aircraft, particularly in the hover or late finals, the, other than I have the con when, he, when the pilot hands it over, that there is no other point that we say, right, I'm in charge now, or the doctor's in charge or the paramedic's in charge or, or whoever. It's just, it, it's, it comes down to common sense, dare I say, in our operation. It's, it's my job as the ACO, and I said, pseudo sort of mission commander is to work out where the scene of the accident is and where the nearest landing site is. It's a pilot's job to then follow that direction uh, to get us to the scene safely. It's the paramedic's job to then either be winched in and, and make the scene safe and logistically control the scene. What, what more assets do they need? Who else do they need to word up? And then it's the doctor's job to, to look after the patient. They're in charge of the, the clinical side of, of the patient. So at each stage during the flight, everyone, uh, what do you call it, a form of leadership because everyone's just, it's, it's the team. You know, quite obviously the pilot will retain 
not only from an aviation legislation perspective, but at any stage that that, that captain can absolutely uh, call the shots and they're ultimately responsible. But, you know, we're in a mature organisation that if I feel that something isn't, isn't appropriate, isn't suitable, or even even our doctor, who's who's the, the least trained of the lot you know, in an aviation perspective, if, if they're uncomfortable and they, they make that known, then guess what? That, that you know, that's it. We're, that mission's off. Or we find a different way to do it. Yeah, it's, it's a good way to put it, a situational leadership. We'll transition shortly more towards the, the front seat uh, side of things. But just before we leave uh, your hat there, uh, wearing it as a, a ACO, h- how often do you get involved with the actual treatment of the patient? Like, is that a is that a danger in terms of now you're not being aircrew because now you're working on the patient? Like, how, how often do you, does it happen where you actually get sucked into we actually have to work on the patient with the, the medical stuff. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. Um, yeah, if you're not want to know a fair fair bit of depth into that one, certainly listen to uh, to you know these other podcasts that that I've done, and even interviewing other aircrofters um, in similar operations, and we delve right into this stuff. Uh, to, to give you the, the straight up answer, there is no policy that we have in our jurisdiction as to a requirement for the ACO to assist. It is not in their job title. It is not a requirement for them to to go anywhere near a patient other than to load them in, into the aircraft and out of the aircraft. We have, and and similarly, we don't have any guidance that says you, you will not assist. So it, you really, you can you can offer your assistance as much as you like. You then would fall under the responsibility of the paramedic or ultimately the doctor as the, as the senior clinician. So really, whatever they're comfortable with you doing, you, you know, you can do. Uh, generally speaking, because that guidance isn't there. So for me personally, I enjoy that because I've sort of got a bit of that background and, and I, I just love it. I love getting in there and helping out, not just because I find it interesting, but I really want to drive home that team piece. So, you know, it's not we're just the air crew that gets you to the scene. We, you know, once we land and I've set the aircraft up to, for the next leg of the flight, well, my job's done. I need to get in there and, and help with uh, even for simple things like that our medical kits on the aircraft are not the same as the, the road kits that the, the road paramedics carry. So often a, a junior road paramedic is far less informed than, than our own aircrew officers are with helping the back. So we can be uh, far more valuable at times. So, yeah, it, look, you know, we've, we've, we certainly have guys that get heavily involved and others that for their own psychological preservation and, and absolute, that's why we don't have the guidance on it because, if, if you choose to get involved, sure. If you don't, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. That is not what you're trained to do. That's not what you're being prepared to do. So it, it's up to you. Yeah. All right. So, again, tongue-in-cheek, I've put there in the notes that, uh, you know, at some point you also got sick of watching the other numpty in the front fly the helicopter around and thought you could do a better job. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the uh, what was the setup for, for learning how to fly yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it was exactly that, but uh, I did find myself. It all started in the military. Well, I actually started flying airplanes before I went into into being an aircrofter on the Blackhawks. Anyway, so I sort of was going down that road early in the piece. I actually, just started up when I got back from from Afghanistan in 2011. Actually, in fact, it started earlier than that. My father got me a um, for my for my 18th birthday. He got me a, a, a trial introductory flight down at Nara in New South Wales down there. So that's where I got the first taste as a pilot. And then, um, yeah, anyway, then I got into fixed wing and then got air crew. And then I found myself looking forward far too far too uh, often than I should have been and uh, figured, well, 
and it's probably um you should probably do something about that so and that's where i went over and uh went over to the states in 2018 and and got my helicopter ppl over there and then um came back and and uh, spent the next year or so um, doing my commercial exams and and getting my hours up to meet the commercial syllabus yeah set the the, the flight test and, and thankfully got through that so yeah and then from there you know you, you said at the start mate that it's difficult at times to break into work as a pilot but thankfully the school that i was at at bankstown they also had a scenic portion to the business uh, up and down the harbor so for for most of the commercial students that that finished there you were offered if if you did okay through your training a, a position basically an intern as a scenic pilot so yeah, a lot of commercial guys went on to do that and just build build up their hours, flying up and down the harbour all day. Was it worse? I was going to say, yeah. their phone's going to yeah. ring uh, hot tomorrow. You know, uh, people have just heard that. Yeah, yeah, I didn't name them. Didn't name <laughs> them, but uh, yeah, look, they're um, yeah, it's uh, you, but that's that's with anywhere. Like that would be my advice to anyone looking to train. If you can find a school in your area that has another arm of scenic or or charter. It's, charter can often be a little bit more difficult because you've got to find that they have higher insurances sometimes. you basically just got to find the gap between what you finish your commercial license with and what that next minimum hour job is. And that's what's difficult for most people is how do I go from 150 hours or 100 hours on a commercial license to get you know 500 hours or a couple hundred hours that I need to get my first job. And hopefully, like I did, the school, um, you know, just their insurances allowed it. And, and that's that's how you could you know, get get your hours up. And how'd you feel going from you know you weren't exactly Chinooks and things, but from a you know Blackhawk and one three nine are still decently sized helicopters. How'd, how'd it feel jumping into an R twenty two? Well, yeah, I'll tell you what, um, you know a lot of people scoff and uh, and they might have something different to say, but I'll tell you what, I've flown Blackhawk, I've flown one three nine and a few other types, but it's uh, if. If you can fly a 22, you can fly anything. I tell you what, I haven't flown a ton of aircraft, but if I've, you know, I've also flown those other couple just ad hoc before I flew a 22, and and um, yeah, it's it's both uh, challenging and and very rewarding at the same time. You, you certainly do feel like you're flying a helicopter, that's for sure. As you mentioned before, mate, with the the monitoring that you know the, the satellite monitoring, and, and even more so now with the a lot of new aircraft are coming up with EMUs, the engine monitoring units, and and even our 139s have got hundreds of ops, uh, sensors all over it that engineering and management will know about it before you even land. So it's it's really one of the few aircraft that you can jump in and really fly it like a helicopter. And, and you don't want to fly it any long distance, but I'm sure we'll talk about that one if you've got a bit of an average back. But it's yeah, it's, it's just brilliant. Yeah, and we'll get some, to some big trips coming up very shortly. Actually, I'll just, just finish off here in terms of did you feel like you could leverage your ACO experience during the, the pilot training? Like, Did you feel that was a, a quicker process for you to go through? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I did my PPL in the States um, in six weeks. I actually did the flying part in, in four weeks, mainly because I, I had a lot of that that knowledge already, you know, the, the, the weather, um, how to read charts, how to talk on a radio, which is what as I'm sure you can attest to for students. That's, that's one of the hardest parts is trying to understand air traffic control and tell them what they want to hear. And, 
um, how to fly simple circuits and patterns and all that sort of stuff. Like, although I hadn't been on the controls other than an airplane, but it's um, it, it helped immensely. Yeah, absolutely. Tops. Okay, well, let's talk about some of these big trips. So uh, you've posted uh, a couple of maps over the times there on, on LinkedIn, and we'll put a link to your uh, LinkedIn feed there and people can come have a look, and I'll try and put these on the blog post as well. Ideally, what we're going to do now is just tease out some kind of reflections that you've had uh, and some tips for, for people who find themselves doing you know, long-distance trips, and specifically in Australia and, and probably in small helicopters. One of them here is uh, 4,300 kilometers took you 30 hours and 16 fuel stops so i had a quick look kind of i guess on the globe in terms of, of comparisons so that one was from uh, mariba so northern uh, queensland uh, down through broken hill and then uh, across to uh, perth but if you were if the u.s listeners if you were to go from the islands off the coast of uh, san francisco all the way across the u.s to the very northeastern corner of, of maine that's about the, the same distance and if you went from London to Basra in southern Iraq, it's about the same distance as well. So Australia's big when you look at it like that. And, uh, and there's a lot of nothing out there, which I guess is something you'll, you'll touch yeah. on. And then the other trip is, uh, I guess, was you know, Sydney up through to um, uh, VRD, but so essentially up through the middle of Northern Territory. And uh, a little note there, that cracked in, it's about uh, 3,100 kilometres so, again, another uh, sort of 10 fuel stops to, to get you there. So these are, you know, for, for a small helicopter, for uh, more junior pilots, I guess. And, you know, having said that, like, I, I didn't go anything more than 90 minutes out of Brisbane for, like, 10 years. So even for me to try to do a, mm. a, a cross-country flight now it would be a, a bit of a struggle to get my head back into, into the space. So, yeah, what was talk through what were some of the surprises for you what were the steps you went through in terms of risk management making sure you had all the right gear how did you sort of break down a you know 4000 kilometer trip into something that you could actually kind of break up and and uh, and chip away at right, i have no idea how i did it <laughs> okay that'll make for a short podcast <laughs> <laughs> i have no idea how it, uh, yeah cool mate yeah it's um Look, I uh, had a call one day for, uh, from a, um, uh, a basically a, a salesman for, for Robertson, and um, and he said, "How do you feel about ferrying an aircraft?" And I said, "Mate, I'd love to. Yeah, where, where are we going? Or, or you know, maybe I can overnight somewhere." <laughs> he says, "Oh, you you might need to, to give a few days up." I said, "Okay, yeah, all right, even even better." He said, "As how does Perth to Cairns sound?" I said, "Oh, great, that's excellent, mate. I'll take it. It's, wow, what a, what a journey. That's it. Look." I'll pack all my bags and I'll get it up. He said, make sure you pack light. So why is that? So you're doing it in a 22. <sighs> okay. <laughs> okay. I guess I am. Uh, and, and that's where that one started. So I flew commercial jet over to, over to Jandicott and jumped in up there and, and started the journey. So yeah, um, I think it's easiest to start with. It's mate, as you, you know, when you said you, you know more than a 90 minute nav, well, it's, it's just, one nav um, after the next, you know, it's, it's the easiest way to look at it. rather than looking at going from Jandicott to Mariba to, to, you know, Perth to Cairns. It's looking at, okay, what do I want to achieve in the first day? What do I want to do in the second day and third and subsequent fourth and uh, fourth day. And that, so that's how I planned it. And then from that day, it was like, well, how many legs do I want to do? I want to go from here to there. Okay. Well, that's one nav from here to the next one. So, that, that, you know, 
you, you still apply those same principles of, of nabbing. It's just multiplied by, by so much more. And now you have to start to factor in things like the fatigue and the remoteness of it and contingency planning. And now you're going to unfamiliar areas. So, you know, having so, that. So how many days or, that, or how, how many leagues in advance did you plan at each point? Like, did you have, did you have a pretty good idea of exactly where you're going when you left Perth and adjust bits or were you basically just doing one day and then getting the next day kind of a, yeah, how far ahead had you had it? All yeah. Planned? Yeah, that's it's a it's a good question. So I had about a week's notice to to have a look at this and and to get ready to go. So I, I knew that again from from my other experiences that planning any more than a day in advance in detail is is futile. I mean, if you have the time, absolutely, you really want to study this. So, and what I mean by that is not is not you know not looking at aerodromes that you want to visit along the way or stops or planning ahead. For fuel it's more just if you drive yourself to do one thing and then the weather changes more of a human factors thing you're going to press you're going to push that that confirmation bias that wanting to just do that because you've planned it so um as you can see that map that i shared with which is dotting out the routes all the way i did that you know days in advance that was the proposed in fact it wasn't i lied that that was one of the one of the last planning exercises I had, it's it's slightly different to the first one because I was far more conservative until I knew what the aircraft was actually going to burn in terms of fuel and how it was going to fly and how it was going to perform. I didn't know exactly how far I could stretch the machine. So, and and that was just again the planning exercise. So from there, I I I had planned to go a little bit further on the first day, but unfortunately the flight out of Sydney got delayed, and the day I landed commercial into Perth was the day I wanted to start at least uh, get going. So I only made it two stops out of, out of Perth at that stage. So I overnighted in, in Kalgoorlie, which is almost sort of lower central Western Australia, which ended up being great because what that meant was that I could just have a relatively easy first day and and then that you know get up nice and fresh and, and set to go for the next day, which I knew was going to be my biggest day. But anyway, the, the the first day was a bit, like, as I said, was a bit of a half day, and that was probably the one of the hardest legs of all. Um, Can give people who are first listening. So uh, it gives a bit of context here too. So if you're in the US or in, in Europe, like you are flying over towns and airfields like every couple of minutes, I'm guessing. So your options for for fuel and stops yeah. and everything are like continuous. What's do you want to describe what the uh, what's the scenery like from Perth to Kalgoorlie? Yeah, yeah. So about about half an hour, forty five minutes out of Perth, there is nothing. It goes to nothingness for a considerable amount of time for the rest of it, and that's infrastructure as well. So once you, yeah, you know, it's called an hour out of Perth. You're on your own, and it's you know to give that context when I'm trying to plan this thing, it's it's dot to dot. It's like doing that drawing game of going dot to dot to build an image because I had to, and if you could have one dot, which is your your starting airport or, or wherever you're leaving from, and then if I could show you what I drew on paper, there would be a, probably about six or seven different lines spanning out from that point, like a like a hand spread out on, on the paper at different airports. I'd draw one to one and go, okay, no fuel. Next one, okay, not 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 suitable for whatever reason. Okay, next one, oh, it's got jet, but no gas. Okay, next one. So it was, and then once I found one, boom, the process started again. Another five or six, you know, contingencies from there, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, about an hour out of 
uh, uh, Perth, you, you're into a nothingness. And then that's that's just that first half day. Then flying into Kalgoorlie, it's one of our biggest mines, if not the biggest in Australia, don't quote me, but it's it's a huge open-cut mine in there. So it is, it is Mars. It is the face of Mars in that area. Um, and that was half day. That was, you know, four hours of flying out of Perth and, and you're in it. And it was really the next day, which was, uh, you know, was my biggest day. It was up around nine hours of flight to get across it. That was across the Nullarbor, which is quite a famous stretch of land in Australia. It's um, I'd probably be 1,500 k or so. Again, don't quote me, but it's, it's quite a large stretch. And, and it's one straight, longest road in the country. It's huge. It's flat. You, can, you know, it ducks over the horizon when you look at it. They land our flying doctor fixed-wing aircraft on. It's a pseudo-runway. And it, it, you can imagine there's there's no fuel stops. It's not like a car. There's no fuel stops along the road. Although there are a couple of roadhouses that do have fuel, thankfully. But imagine dot to dot. So I'm zigzagging across this road the whole way to make it make it to these fuel stops. But that that is absolute ro- remoteness, and that's that's where you start. You know, I took it was my first big ferry, or my first you know even small ferry for that matter. And I took along a little toolkit of flathead, couple of flathead screwdrivers you know, even Phillips heads and just cable ties and all that sort of that, that stuff you'd have in the back of your car. Not that I ever really intended on using it, you know, because I'm not a maintainer, but at least if I would, you know, if, if I could call a maintainer and get that authorization to, to do anything I needed to, I, I had some equipment to get by if I ended up, you know, if it was life or death, if I ended up having to put down in the middle of nowhere with no reception, then that was a contingency. So I took sleeping bags, I took everything. I, I was prepared to, to put it down in the middle of a paddock and switch on my army cassette in my head and, and go full full military and survival mode. So, yeah, yeah, that's how those first couple of days started. So before we go past those hops in, so just things on like risk management in terms of comms, so, yeah, I don't know, sat phone, spot tracker, what, what were some of the gears yep. you had or, or what just the basic risk management things you did to make that uh, go a bit smoother? Yeah, for sure. Other than the – so – so I made sure I called ahead every stop, regardless of, I, I was burnt before, uh, metaphorically, uh, with with not calling ahead, thinking that no TAMs are, you know, they're, they're, it's either a no TAM or it's not. If it's not, it's, it's available. And, and I've been to a place before where they just didn't bother no TAMing it. So um, I definitely, that, that contingency is to call ahead to make sure that I had ideally fuel where I was going. I never really booked accommodation more than that day in advance because I just didn't know where I was going to end up, what the weather was going to do or what, how far I was going to get. But but otherwise, yeah, calling ahead and making sure that these places had fuel was paramount. But yeah, in terms of the other risk mitigation stuff, so look, I, I made sure I took a decent first aid kit. Um, I had a bit of survival uh, food and water with me as well. You know, it's quite obviously a legal requirement as well if you look at our CASA regulations. But yeah, I had a satellite phone, so we hired a satellite phone, and 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 a, and a, a PLB as well, so a personal located beacon, distress beacon as well. So one one thing that I sort of took for granted was fuel cards. You know, you think the obvious one. What's one thing you could forget on a fuel card? The pin on on expiry date. Oh, expiry. <laughs> okay, yeah. <The> expiry. <laughs> So a couple of fuel cards I had, it expired. Thankfully, most of these places all took credit cards. Um, so look, it's a bit of a rookie mistake there. You took that for granted. Too worried about the other stuff. But yeah, basically that's the, the, I guess, the the remote long-distance ferry flight contingencies I had were really a sat phone, 
PLB and first aid and, and small survival kit was really what was different about this trip. And for those legs, how far off the the highway would you have gone? Did you you hug the highway? Um, no, unfortunately, you just just didn't have the legs to do that. So there, other than so that road stretches, basically, I managed to get two out of the four stops were on that road. Really, Kalgoorlie was one of those sort of loosely on the on the Nullarbor there. It's the start of it really, and then the Nullarbor Hotel, which is a roadhouse on that road. The other ones I had to, uh, like I said before, I had to go south off that road by about 50 miles to get fuel on the on the south uh, on the southern west Australia coast to get fuel there, and then had to then go northeast, so track back over diagonally over that road to the other side of it to get to Forest to refuel there to then do the same and cross back over to get to the Nullarbor hotel on the other side look if you're in a 44 absolutely or any other aircraft you could follow that road because there's sufficient fuel to get to stay on that road but i just it just didn't have that that fuel available and and look i could have you know weeks notice it's and it's out of mustering season two so if mustering's going on there's a lot of stations a lot of uh, ranches stations across that road as well that during mustering time they they would generally have a stock of fuel but this was out of mustering season, and and I thought, look, if I didn't have to dig into someone else's stock, um, then I wouldn't. So a, a small detour, I was happy to go to a, an airport rather than take a farmer's stock. And what's the uh, what's the highest hill just out of you know within the closest uh, thousand feet on that route? Oh, oh, yeah, uh, 50, 50 feet. <laughs> um, the, the highest part with with a cliff and. Um, and in the southern coastline of WA, where it dropped off about a hundred feet into the ocean, but yeah, it's it's nothingness. Yeah, like I said, literally when you're flying along, that's that that road, it it, it just rolls over. You, you can see the curvature; it, it rolls off the horizon. It's gone. There is nothingness out there. Yeah, until you really get into sort of central South Australia, it's very much like that. It's, it's flat desert type of shrub terrain out there. Yep. All right, and then, and then I guess it goes. I'm just looking at the the major points here. So, and these were all pretty remote anyway. So, you know, Port Augusta, Broken Hill, and then up through you know Quilby, Longreach, Hewenden, and then up into South or near Cairns there. So, like it's just mm. uh, it's just remote all the way. So, yeah, yeah. And look, some people might look at that and go, "Well, you know, why did you pick that route? Why not go?" to the north or why not go through the centre and, and quite easily you probably appreciate it by now there just wasn't a feel to do that that route was was fairly closely the most efficient I could do it thankfully you know who I was uh, contracted by to do this is just such a great guy and, and super safety conscious he said Mate, whatever you need to do to get it there you just you, you do you he said oh, there is no commercial pressure on this you get there when you get there and, and you take whatever route you want so and that probably going back to your risk mitigation at the start. That is, that is something I don't. I hope it doesn't sound too cocky. I don't. I don't stand for it in general aviation. And because I was brought up in sort of the military aviation and then into rescue and then I've gone down this pilot route. I've, I've obviously had to delve into the GA world, but I my safety and risk mitigation does not waver um, even for this sort of stuff. So if people want me to to, to do this work, I say I'm going to do it um, safely. I'm going to do it properly. And legally, absolutely, and there's no corners that are going to be cut. So, yeah. Was there any other highlights from that particular trip, or, or things that you, again were surprises that 
next time you do it, you would change something? Um, yeah, one of those was uh, I bought myself a memory foam uh, cushion. So um, those that, who have ever flown a Robertson would, would appreciate the seats aren't, aren't that, that crash hot. So, yeah, just a, a memory foam sort of thing. But, um, look, the only other thing was what I did end up getting after that trip was a spot tracker that you said before. So w- whether it's a spot tracker or any other satellite tracker, because the sat phone was excellent. I, um, I needed it only once for for my SAR time. So I was religious with my SAR times. Um, again, that, that um, um, you know, I guess the boss, uh, the, the sales manager was, was the whole, this was over a weekend and he just held my SAR, you know, diligently. And, but I think, which is great. Uh, and that's what I shy people away from. I often see students at where I used to fly the scenic and they would put their SAR time, you know, up to an hour after they've arrived. And so that's three hours time. So, yeah, yeah, but I just, just in case you get better value. Well, what if you crash 10 minutes out of here, mate? You're now on the ground for an hour and, you know, 50 minutes waiting, burning, waiting for someone to come and get you. Yeah, that's not cool. So that was something I learned from this was that's great for the star time, which the leg might take me two hours. But in that time, I wanted and then I went and bought a satellite tracker, which I now take with me on every flight, and it, it pings every 10 minutes or so, every five to 10 minutes, my location, as well as the star time when I arrive. So that's really what, it was the main thing and to pack a bit lighter like i i went well overboard as as i do not regret but now that i've done it i know now what what i need as the essentials to, to get the job done yeah no a free plug i guess for companies like spider tracks i think we had said like yeah. two two minutes in the training area i guess putting your ACO mm-hmm. hat back on like how hard would it be to find an r22 that's gone down on some of those legs that you flew um some of those legs incredibly difficult it I must caveat that with, with if you didn't have a proper SAR plan and someone didn't know your flight plan, look, as you know, they're, they're, they're still hunting for a fix when they got lost in the 90s up in the Blue Mountains. You know, they still can't find it um, in you know in the dense bushland up there. So, but having said that, on that, that remote flat terrain, you'd, you'd be able to see the wreckage from from a considerable distance away. But really, that's, that's what's just not super important about your SAR time, it's your flight plan as well. No, you don't have to necessarily, I didn't submit a flight plan once and perhaps that is something that in future I might consider doing again. But basically I held that flight plan with with who was holding my SAR time. So they knew the route I was taking. I said, I'm leaving this point, going to this point. And I would always go the most direct route. And they knew that. It was always straight line. Um, so that if anything did happen and they knew an exact line to search, which is ideally having worked in the rescue world, you know, obviously not everyone's going to go out and fly, but if they go out and do a hike or a bushwalk or a, or a camp or something like that, then, then put in your, your tracks, put in your routes so people know where to search. Nothing nothing worse than turning up to a beacon or if someone's said, oh, my family man's not home. Well, where are they? Where were they going? I don't know, but they just haven't come home. So I go, well, great. Okay, we've got hundreds of thousands of hectares just in the, you know, in the lower mountains alone. Where, where do you start? So. Yeah, I'm a big yeah. fan of the spot trackers because you think if it's every, even if it's 10 minutes, but every two minutes, your area that you're searching, you know, how far you can fly in two minutes and even how far you can fly in 10 minutes starts to become a, a bigger area. But uh, I've mm. got to imagine, you know, again, your stories of, of having to go out to a, you know, a PLB or, or, you know, go find someone, that cuts down that, that search area greatly for anyone who's, who's coming out to look for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, if there's nothing else we can sort of squeeze out of that one, I guess then the other trip uh, covering a little bit of territory that's different is from Sydney then up to 
the, the Northern Territory. That was R22 again, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I actually did um, two of those. Uh, one was from Sydney to, as you said, uh, a, a, um, a farming station in the middle of the Northern Territory, and the other one was, in fact, into Darwin. Well, just short of Darwin Airport into a private property in a suburb just south of Darwin, and that was a 44. So I've done it in a 22 and then again in a 44. And, and yeah, similar yeah, similar concept in a way. Really, the, the, the most uh, – I was actually, you know, going back to both of those jobs, really immensely surprised at the phone reception that whole way. I only lost it once, and that was one at central uh, west Queensland that, that whole time. And maybe I didn't, didn't see it the other times, but, yeah, that, that reception's – Awesome, but really, yeah, until you get the, the Northern Territory, which is you know, obviously this, this leg we're now talking about, it is that that is desert. Yeah, it's where I said before, it's sort of like desert shrub down on the other trip. This is, yeah, red rock, true surface of, of Mars type of stuff. So, you know, talking, and, and what comes with that is that's further up towards the equator, uh, as we know, mate, so that the, the temperature is generally a bit hotter, the tropics, the humidity, aircraft performs a bit different, um, and just your fatigue as well when you're up in areas like that and there are other things that i wasn't necessarily as as prepared for as as i was on the other trip yeah i was lucky after that trip uh, twice on, on huey so first the single ship and then uh, the second time with, with two aircraft going up and we did uh oh, sure. trivia uh, um simpsons trivia between the two aircraft over the radio to, to keep people oh uh, yeah and there's one spot, I can't remember if it's out of Mount Isa or out of Tennant Creek, where there's a, a grid square on, on the map where there's just actually like nothing inside the entire, you know, entire square on, yeah. on the map itself, which uh, uh, that's the first time I've ever seen that. Not surprised. Nuts. Okay. Well, look, that's a um, bit of different stuff there in terms of, you know, the ACO world and, and complex operations. Yeah. Like it doesn't, you know, like NVGs. Medics in the back, hoisting all kinds of stuff going on. To, I guess you could say the you know the purest uh, helicopter flying in an R twenty two, travelling straight line for for hours at a time to to get it uh, across the country. So, I guess it's a you know a, a different setup that we've uh, we've talked through. Is there anything else you want yeah. to kind of tease out from those trips or describe? You know the. Just the the feeling of of flying and being like the only person from Horizon Horizon. Yeah, it's um, yeah. Look, it's it, not really. It's, it's you know, if you ever get the opportunity to do it, you, you've got to do it. And it's funny. Well, after I posted that, I've had a lot of military buddies, military pilots saying, "Dude, cherish it. Um, that's some of the best flying." And as you've just said, doing it at Hughes, I'm sure you can attest it's some of your your best flying you'll do. It's weird. It's straight and level. It's monotonous and boring at times, but it's just you, your machine, and you know a good podcast or a song just quietly in the background, and seeing some amazing scenery. And you know, it's it's look. All I'd say is just just don't don't cut corners. Like it can be extremely unforgiving out there, and you know, do your standard standard stuff. Uh, James, do you want to give a, a plug to the uh, Aeromedical Rescue Podcast? What's, it, when I went looking, I just threw it into Google and I don't know who's done your uh, distribution, but <laughs> I think you're on every single podcast platform. <laughs> yeah, I need to hire someone. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's called the Aeromedical Rescue and Retrieval Podcast. Yeah, and it's, it's hosted by the Aeromedical Society of Australasia, but 
Yeah, it's on there. Yeah, have a look. Some really cool individuals, as, as you do as well, make, um, have a chat with. So, yeah, you can get on there and, and yeah, certainly leave your feedback, give us your thoughts and, and uh, yeah, keen to really inform and tell some cool stories. Well, it's probably no surprise to anyone. It's been like months since I've uh, actually turned on the microphone and, and, and given this a crack. Uh, one, you know, I guess I've just been distracted with uh, with a completely different line of work. And then the, the longer it is between I actually, you know, get to touch a helicopter, it's sort of uh, harder to uh, to kind of you know, get through the friction of, of pressing record as well. But uh, look, I guess the thing that kicked this off and got me talking with, with uh, James today is you've had a, you know, a colleague who's been affected by flooding in uh, New South Wales. So we've had floods through Queensland, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say Queensland, through Victoria and New South Wales on and off the last month and a bit, and I guess, and affected different people. And rescue helicopters have been flat out. Uh, so I'm not sure what your operational tempo has been. But uh, there's a, a GoFundMe campaign at the moment for, for Kyle. Uh, he's an aircrew officer in the same organisation with you there, James. So he's uh, based uh, just uh, west uh, out of Orange and obviously supporting the, the community out there. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, in, in the process, you know, his, uh, his house has gone under and uh, been flash flooding through the town of Yugara. So a little blurb there on the uh, GoFundMe page, uh, Kyle's an crew officer. He's been also been a military veteran. And unfortunately, he and his young family are now victims to the devastated floods in his uh, hometown of uh, Yugara, uh, a town that uh, unfortunately, I guess just because of the history, there's no actual insurance there for uh, they can't get flood cover for insurance. So he's lost most things in his home, and there's pictures there on, on LinkedIn of just but mud all the way through the house, and uh, some of the other uh, staff there at the at that uh, particular organisation uh, helping out. So helping his home and his life back together. Uh, so tough times uh, for, for many, uh, and especially for, for for Kyle and his family there. So I will put up a, a link uh, to the GoFundMe page, but I guess also if you go to uh, rotarywingshow.com uh, forward slash, uh, what I'll do and make it easier is go make it forward slash uh, 111. So this is episode uh, 111. Uh, that will take you straight to the uh, GoFundMe page. And uh, yeah, if you can help out another uh, air crew member there. So uh, no, no, if there's anything you can add to that, James, uh, but Essentially, that was what <laughs> managed to get in contact with James and uh, and get out there and, and press record again. Yeah, yeah, no, you, you've you've hit the nail on the head, mate. And it's, it's uh, look, it's devastating at, at at any time and and whoever it is. Um, but yeah, particularly when it's when it's one of your own and, and under such terrible circumstances. And and he's not only an ACO, but um, but you know, twelve hours later, even after losing his his house he was out you know with his volunteer or fire brigade out there um you know helping put, put out put out a, a barn fire as well so look he's just one of those country guys that he will never ask for help you know he's he just never asked for it so we rally around and it's, it's you know not just to see him him get back on his feet yeah young family look we can all relate so it's just it's terrible you know insurance companies it's are a pain at the best of times, but yeah, they just don't want to touch it with a barge pole. And, and as you said, mate, yeah, these flood prone areas, they you, you you have that gamble when you move in there. But unfortunately, he's he's lost out. But hey, you know where we can, we we pitch in and and um, help him out. So you know, so we can get back on shift and do what he loves and and help others recover as well. So yeah, thanks for reaching out, Mick, and and uh, for having that plug. 
Yeah, and look, I think it, the, that particular campaign is pretty close to the, the, the current target just because of the amount of support that, um, you know, yourself and, and the LK workers have been able to generate. But effectively, any, any excess funds will just basically go to the neighbours and the, uh, the rest of the people here in the town around Kyle. So, yeah, check yeah. out the link if you, if you can. Um, yeah, it's a, a good cause. Uh, James, thank you very much, mate. Um, yeah, enjoyed listening to your podcast. We'll, we'll plug that so people can go and find some more about the the interplay there. Uh, you tell a, a pretty good story there in episode two about, a uh, again, a, a complex mission with a, a few bits and pieces going on, including you know, leaving people behind to uh, fend for themselves for a little bit on, on the ground before you come back and get them. Uh, but yeah. also, you know, yeah, some of the things there, like just as an ACO instructor and trainer, I kind of didn't put it all together about how much sort of training you actually do with the, the medical staff uh, as well. Mm. Um, so you are actually like a you know, a full-on crew as opposed to them just being passengers who yeah. uh, get delivered. So, yeah, mate, that was really, really interesting. Uh, and I think people, if you're looking for podcasts in between, uh, go check out. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, mate, I'm, um, yeah, just a, just a you know, quick quick plug there as well, another one. It's, it's, um, I remember listening to your podcast, mate, when I was starting out as, as, a, as a pilot and, and a crew and just listening to, to you know, gathering whatever, whatever uh, those golden nuggets I could. So, look, if I can offer my assistance with anyone that's looking to either go on ACO, RCO, or, or even, um, you know, down that commercial pilot, I think we're lacking those sort of mentors or the approachable mentors in the industry. So, look, I've learned a lot of lessons, both good and bad. I've spent a lot of money that I shouldn't have, and, and I've saved a hell of a lot of money as well. So, yeah, if you want, uh, hence that's one of the reasons I went to the state. So if anyone wants any assistance with that, just reach out. You know, through that LinkedIn and, and uh, hit me up. Awesome. All right, James, thank you, mate, and uh, I'll chat to you soon. Great. Thanks again, bud.